0: This morning, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Psalm 111. I want to introduce our sermon by reading the first few verses of Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. Once again, let's pray for the help of God. Most blessed and glorious God, we do thank you and praise you that indeed all of your works praise you, all that which you have made and all that which you do is a credit to you. It brings you glory. And we do bless you that this book that we hold in our hands also reflects your glory and it breathes of your character. And we pray that you would be pleased by the power of your Holy Spirit to take the principles and the words of scripture and burn them into our hearts so that we might be a people that are, that are live for your praise and for your glory. That we might be a people that honor you and, and are blessed with help to proclaim your glory to the rest of the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Henry Ford, who was the founder of the Ford Motor Company, he was the chief developer of the assembly line technique of mass production. And by creating the first automobile that middle class Americans could afford, he converted the automobile from an expensive luxury to an accessible mode of transportation that profoundly impacted 20th century American society. And one of the most well known sayings that's been attributed to Uh, As to Henry Ford, his, his his supposed quip, history is bunk. Now, oddly enough, he never said exactly that, which is almost like always happens when these little quotes get circulating around everywhere. But he did say something along those lines many times during his life. He used the word bunk associated with history for the first time in print, during a 1916 interview with reporter Charles Wheeler for the Chicago Tribune. And this is what he said, say, what do I care about Napoleon? What do we care about what they did 500 or 1,000 years ago? I don't know whether Napoleon did or did not try to get across, and I don't care. It means nothing to me. History is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. Tradition. We want to live in the present, and the only history that's worth a tinker's dam is the history that we make today. So well, that's what he actually said. But the court documents that of a subsequent libel lawsuit, they reveal that he really didn't think that nothing whatsoever could be gained from the study of history. And these documents, they suggest that even Ford thought that the lessons of history were outweighed though by the innovations of the present day. But there's no evidence that at least in his own personal industrial history was was left out in his mind. That to him was that was history that's worth knowing all about, because he did it. And in his later life, therefore, he saved 14 million personal and business documents in his personal archives, and he constructed over a hundred buildings to house the Henry Ford Museum and Greenfield Village in Dearborn, Michigan. And by the way, if you've never been there, it is really worth the trip. Now for the Christian thinking biblically, history is not bunk. And the reason that this is so is that he sees the hand of God at work throughout history. In the verses that we read a moment ago, the psalmist says, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. Verse 2. God's providence, God's history is studied by people that delight in God. We find pleasure in in reflecting upon and seeing the hand of God in history. And for this reason, we study history. We marvel at the works of God in history. It is honorable and glorious, verse 3. And therefore, he has made his wonderful works to be remembered, verse 4. Now, in our last two sermons in this series on the providence of God, we began to look at the interpretation of God's providence in history. And in these sermons, we've only had time to cover the first three points that the outline that uh, was sent out over online. And uh, we're going to come this morning to a fourth of those points that are there in that outline. But let me just quickly remind you of the three headings that we've covered so far we look first of all at the relationship of providence and history. The way we interpret providence will determine the way we evaluate history. And this is so because providence and history are really the same thing looked at from two different points of view. Providence is history as God has ordained it and watches over it. And because this is the case, one can't truly understand history if he doesn't have a correct view of providence. And In order that we might understand this relationship of history and providence, we need to recognize the two sides of history, the divine and the human side of history. And we also saw that we need to recognize the twofold alternative of history, blessing and judgment, as Moses pronounced the blessings and judgments before God's people were about to go into the land of, of promise. And having noted the relationship of providence and history... Under our second heading, we noted the contrasting interpretations of providence and history. And we saw, for instance, the example of the way in which Elijah and Ahab interpreted the three-and-a-half-year famine that had come upon the land. There are contrasting interpretations of providence. and Obviously, Elijah and Ahab could both be right. One of them was wrong. And then thirdly, last time we looked at the duty of interpreting providence and history. In Matthew 16, Jesus reproves the Pharisees and Sadducees for being able to read the heavens as for indications of the coming weather and yet being so obtuse that they can't discern the signs of the times. And so just as we ought to pay attention to the ominous signs of bad weather, we should not be oblivious to the ominous developments in our society. And this is one of the reasons why we've commented upon this along the way in this series of sermons. It is the duty of the church to shed the light of God's word on what is going on at the present time. In Luke 13, we see that Jesus paid attention to current events. He knew about the Tower of Siloam falling upon certain ones, And he gave us a principle that we should use in interpreting such calamities. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just as we are responsible for interpreting current events, we should take efforts to understand history, because history is basically providence in the past. And and yet we have to be very careful as we seek to interpret uh, history and providence Because there is this tendency for us to misinterpret history. God is a God who hides himself, we read in Isaiah 45. And we have this perverse tendency to always interpret things in a favorable way for ourselves. Because we're Americans, we think that God must always be on the side of America, whatever America is doing. And we we tend to interpret things that way. And uh, same thing with other groups of people And they have this tendency to jump to the conclusion that God is on their side, just as those German Christians did when they saw Hitler's rise to power, thinking that he was sent by God for the good of Germany. But now we come to the fourth major heading in this part of our study. And this is the only point that we're going to get through. I was hoping to get through point five as well. But we're going to look this morning at the ebb and flow of providence and history. And here I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 44. The biblical picture of God's church on earth is that history is like a wave, a wave that rises and a wave that falls. Or to use a different figure, it's like the ebb and the flow of, of the tide. And sometimes this rising and falling is in, is in response to the obedience or to the disobedience of God's people. And if the people of God walk in humble obedience to his commandments, blessing results. And if they're disobedient, if they're rebellious, they can expect to be chastened. But this isn't always the case in terms of the ups and downs of God's providence. Sometimes adversity comes to God's people when they are walking in obedience, And this is what it seems to be the case in this particular psalm, Psalm 44. It is a contemplation, as the caption tells us, of the sons of Korah. And in the first three verses, the psalmist reflects on the heady days when the Israelites were conquering the promised land. We read, beginning with verse 1, We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us, the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but then you planted, that is the Israelites you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out, for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. And then in verses 4 through 8, He pleads with God to command fresh victories for Jacob, just as he had done so in the past. He expresses his faith in God, that as his people rely upon God, that that they will be victorious, that God will bless them again, just as he did when they were conquering the land of promise. And so we read in verse 4, You are my king, O God, command victories for Jacob. You see, please God's past providence to the present situation. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my, so- my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boast all the day long and praise your name forever. So this doesn't sound like somebody that's in rebellion against the Lord. Or somebody that's walking in in unbelief. He's full of faith in God that God will do this all over again. And this is the way he prays. And then in the following verses, he gives the reason why he pleads for this fresh manifestation of God's power. Now from the first part, the verses we just read, you think, well, everything they must have been doing everything right. God was blessing them. Well, that doesn't have the same connection here. Because to all appearances, God has forgotten them. And in this case, it's not because there's some flagrant sin. That's not applied anywhere in this psalm. The psalmist, he pleads even the integrity of God's people. Notice, for instance, how he puts it in verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. He has a clean conscience, you see. Our heart is not turned back. Nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hand to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart, and yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake! Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake! Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. And now turn with me to Psalm 126. Just one more example in the Psalms of this ebb and flow. The good times and the bad times in, in Providence. Psalm 126. And here I just want to quickly read. I uh, don't need to expound this a lot, but you'll see the same thing here. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter And our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. So he reflects upon, the psalmist does, on the time when God brought them back from captivity. Obviously they had sinned. That's why they went into captivity. So this case is a little different from Psalm 44. And as he thinks about what what, what God has done, it's as amazing to him as if it's as if he was just in a dream. He can hardly think of. He can hardly think that this is really true. This is really happening. This is so. He rejoices so much, you see, in what God has just done. Well, he says, "That's what. That's the way we were when we were brought back." But then, what happens? Verse four. He says, "Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams of the south." So he's reflecting on the fact that. God needs to restore them again. And he goes on to say, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so here again, you have times of ups and downs, the ebb and the flow of, of providence for God's people. And Christ himself made it clear that this pattern would continue to the end of the world. This isn't just Old Testament stuff. There would be times in history, he says, when the bridegroom would be taken away from God's people. And this would prompt God's people to fast in those days. Mark 2 and verse 20. And again, he speaks of a time in history when the New Testament church, when believers would desire to see, he puts as he puts it, one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They can reflect on the things that they heard about when Jesus was on Earth and what he did, how wonderful that was. And he says, there's going to come painful times, difficult times when you wish you just had even one day of that, of that blessing of, of his presence. And to use modern terms, periods of revival and periods of declension, they will alternate in the life of Christ Church all the way to the end of time. And it's exceedingly important to believers to be thoroughly convinced of this aspect of God's providence. It rekindles flagging hopes, you see, when we remember that however low the cause of the church might be right now, God is able still to revive us again. And God has done this again and again throughout church history. And sometimes he can do it suddenly in a short time. This encourages us to pray for such times of revival. This is what the psalmist does in Psalm 126. God's people, using this prayer, they remember the former times of revival, times when the blessing came so suddenly, it was all it seemed like a pleasant, sudden dream. And remembering these times, they pray, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And at times of discouragement, our hopes are revived when we remember that the way that falls down into the trough, it is soon going to come up to crest again. And in God's providence, as he brings us down, he will bring us up again. And this concept is a wonderful solace, a wonderful comfort to God's people, keeping us from sinking utterly into despair during evil times as we go through them. And alongside this principle... In an essay that he wrote on interpreting providence, Morris Roberts, he mentions three lost concepts concerning providence that are lost or are in danger of being lost. And I'm going to use those three points that he he gives. These all relate to this ups and downs, you see, of God's providence with reference to the church. And uh, these three things are concepts that are found in the word of God, They were cherished in the better days of the church, and their loss in our day has made the church weaker and less able to wrestle with God to return in his favor. And the first of these three concepts that have been lost or in danger of being lost is the concept of a model age. And here I'd like you to turn with me to Acts 2. When Rob Birchett told me he was going to preach from Acts 2, I said, "Oh, good. That's just that's great. That'll just fit right in. I won't have to comment on everything in this chapter." Well, the closest thing that we have of a perfect model age for the church is found in Acts chapter 2. In verses 1 through 4, we read of the unity that existed in the church. They were of one accord, one of one mind. And we read about the way the church waited on the Lord for the power of the Spirit. It was a praying church. And so we read, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, verse 1, they were all with one accord in one place. You see, it wasn't an idea that, you know, about half of them thought, we're going to go to a ball game today and the other ones can do the praying. Uh, There wasn't the idea, you see. They were all there and they were with one heart. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. One sat upon each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. And we read later on of how the ones that were gathered there all heard the gospel preached in their own native tongue even though many languages were were represented in the audience on that day. And the result of this prayer, wrestling with God and waiting on God for sending the Spirit, the result was great, bold preaching. And so we have a record of Peter's sermon on that day. It was Spirit-anointed preaching. And after Peter's sermon, we see the results of this sermon. Verse 38, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he promises or he calls upon them to, to repent. And then in verses 41 and following, we read that they, they did re- receive the word, they believed, they repented. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then this is what they did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in the prayers. And then fear came upon all, many on every soul. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And then it speaks about the way in which they all shared their goods with one another. There was that expression of brotherly love that was of such a nature that nobody thought anymore about possessions being His own possession. And so, this is an example you see of the kind of love, the kind of spirit filled church, the worshiping church, the church that hears God's word. These things are, are, are a model for the church throughout all ages. And not in an absolute sense, but in a rather limited sense, since the days of Pentecost, there have also been other model ages, we might say, of the church. And by this, we mean that in some ages, God was powerfully at work. God was sending reformation, or God was sending revival, and oftentimes those concepts overlap. And He empowers preachers to preach in an un- with unusual power and with unusual fruitfulness. At other times, there's a dryness and a deadness. That's when the wave is down in the troughs, you see. And even good Orthodox men, it seems like it's a labor to preach. And the church seems like it's shrinking rather than growing. And these dry times, in an absolute sense, the apostolic church in its infancy is the only model church. But in the scriptures alone, we have a pattern of what the church is to be. But it's not that never again was there anything that should be imitated since the times of the apostle. We don't think that ever since... Then it was just a monotonous shade of gray, and it was neither perfect nor unperfect. But there are times of ups and downs in the history of the church. And it's a simple fact that in some periods, the church has been like a lush, green field of wheat. Just it's ready to, you see it, it's growing lushly, it's been well watered, and you think about the harvest that's going to come in a couple months. And then there are those other times of spiritual dryness, and even deadness in the church. And in some quarters, there's been a disparaging attitude about the golden ages of the Reformation, or the covenanting era, the Puritan era, the Great Awakening. But these ages have come. And often these wonderful times of God's blessing upon the church, they were preceded by times of of great dryness. In his book, The Christian Leaders of the 18th Century, J.C. Ryle, he describes what happened before the Great Awakening. And this is a description of the way things were in England. The Great Awakening was both in England and in America. And he writes, from the year 1700 till about the era of the French Revolution, England seemed barren of all that is really good. How such a state of things can have arisen in a land of free Bibles and professing Protestantism is almost past comprehension. Christianity seemed to lie as one dead, in so much you could have said she is dead. Morality, however much exalted in the pulpits, was thoroughly trampled underfoot in the streets. There was darkness in high places, and darkness in low places, darkness in the court, the camp, the parliament, and the bar darkness in the country, darkness in the town, darkness among rich and darkness among poor, a gross, thick, religious and moral darkness, a darkness that might be felt. And then later he says natural theology without a single distinctive doctrine of Christianity, cold morality or barren orthodoxy formed a staple teaching both in church and chapel. Sermons everywhere were little better than miserable moral essays, utterly devoid of anything lively to awaken, convert, or save souls. And when such was the state of things in churches and chapels, it could be no surprise to learn that the land was deluged with infidelity and skepticism. The prince of this world made good a use of this opportunity. His agents were active and zealous, promulgating every kind of strange and blasphemous opinion. And then he goes into some of the terrible doctrines that were being believed and the atheism that was beginning to spread. And he says that the celebrated lawyer Blackstone had the curiosity early in the reign of George III to go from church to church and hear every clergyman of note in London. And he says that he did not hear a single discourse that had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero. Cicero, the ancient Roman orator. He goes on to describe how the clergy was sunk in worldliness and in in ungodliness, and it seemed they said to know everything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when they retired to their homes, it was to do as little and preach as seldom as possible. He's describing, you see, an awful state of affairs that existed there in England. And similar conditions took place here on this side of the Atlantic, And one of the remarkable features of the Great Awakening was the fact that it came upon the church completely apart from any engineering on the part of man. It wasn't because, oh, the church started being really good. They started praying a whole lot more. They started doing this and doing that, and then God blessed them because of all they were doing. It wasn't that way. It was in a time of darkness again. It came suddenly. It was all of grace, not something God did by way of reward. Jonathan Edwards, he composed what he called a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in the conversion of many hundreds of souls. And just like Ryle, he began by describing the terrible spiritual situation that existed before the revival came there in the early 1700s. But when God began to work, he writes, a great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town and among persons of all degrees and ages. All other talk except spiritual and eternal things was soon thrown by. All the conversation in all companies and upon all occasions was upon those things only, unless so much it was necessary for people carrying on their ordinary Secular business. Other discourse than the things of religion would scarcely be tolerated in any company. The only thing in their view was to get the kingdom of heaven. And everyone appeared pressing into it. You see what he's saying? You imagine what this is like to, 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 right around here. Anybody you talk to, the only thing they want to talk to you about is getting saved or, or God and or what God is doing or, or what, what they just read in the Bible. Spiritual things. That's all they wanted to talk about, the whole town. He says, the engagedness of their hearts of this great concern couldn't be hid. It appeared in their very countenances. It was then a dreadful thing amongst us to lie outside of Christ, in danger every day of dropping into hell. And what person's minds were intent upon was to escape for their lives and to fly from the wrath to come. There was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, Left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. Those who were wont to be the vainest and loosest, and those who had been most disposed to think and speak lightly of vital and experimental religion, were now generally subject to great awakenings. And the work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did as it were come to, by flocks to Jesus Christ this work of God soon made a glorious alteration in the town, so that in the spring and the summer following 1735, the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of the love, nor joy, nor so full of the joy, and yet so full of distress as it was then. It was a time of joy in families on account of salvation being brought unto them, parents rejoicing over their children as newborn. Husbands over their wives, and wives over their husbands. The goings of God were then seen in the sanctuary. God's day, he's talking about the Sabbath day, was a delight. And his tabernacles were amiable. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister as they came from his mouth. The assembly in general was from time to time in tears while the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love, others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbors. Well, this narrative goes on to say a whole lot more than I could put into this sermon, but I think you get the point. This was an amazing time. And what would we give, dear people, to see the church, to see our whole town blessed in this way? What an amazing experience that would be. And surely this is a model that we would like to see replicated again. It wasn't a perfect model. Edwards had to address certain excesses that people went to. And Yet we should prize that, and we should long for God to return in power and do some things like that once again. And we should all surprise the hard work that went into the Reformation. The Reformation sometimes wasn't maybe as thrilling and exciting as what Edwards is describing. But in many ways, the Reformation and its work lasted longer than that which took place under the Great Awakening. And in our day, though there's not only the absence you see of Reformation, the absence of revival, but there's even the lost concept of that period altogether. And not only... Are Reformation and Revival missing? The people don't even know they're missing it. It's it's a lost concept, you see. So this is one of the principles, then, that we need to grapple with as we think about the ebb and the flow, the ups and the downs of God's providence throughout history, the concept of a model age. But now I want you to notice with me a second uh, basic uh, principle in this connection. There is a loss, secondly, of the idea that God must be glorified on the earth. Repeatedly throughout scripture, God declares that the grand end for which he created the world was his own glory. And as you study this out, if you look up all the passages that speak about God being glorified, it's it's obvious that God has a passion for this. He puts it in the Bible hundreds of times. It's overwhelming the emphasis of God being glorified. The reason for the existence of everything throughout this whole vast universe is the glory of God. We read in Colossians 1:16 for by him were all things created, and this is referring to Christ that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Proverbs 16.4, it's expressly said, the Lord has made all things for himself. And in heaven, the living creatures, they give honor and they give thanks to him who sits on the throne. And the 24 elders, they fall down before him. They cast their crowns before the one that sits upon that throne. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. Revelation 4. We read in Romans eleven thirty-six the words that we have in, the, in, our, in our living room. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever and ever. And furthermore, the Bible is chock full of declarations that not only is creation, but also providence. In providence, the grand aim of providence as well as creation is the glory of God. Not only did God make everything for his glory, he governs everything for his own glory. Now a ship that's going across the Atlantic is aiming for a certain harbor, that's his destination, and perhaps the ship might be temporarily blown off course in the course of its travels because maybe of a storm, or it might have to go around some other ships or perhaps around an island. But everything that the captain does as he steers that ship is that particular harbor that he has in mind. It's all with reference to where he wants to go. And even so, the grand aim, the grand goal, you see, of God's providence is his own glory. And included in God's providence are the trials of God's people. Maybe you could turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 43. While you're turning there, I'll mention another text in Isaiah. In Isaiah... Forty-eight verses 10 through 11 God says to Israel behold I have refined you but not as silver I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake for my own sake I will do it for how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to another Now he talks about refining his people like silver there in the furnace of affliction, he says, that's where, where I refine you. They're going through painful times. And apart from our trials, dear people, we tend to pursue other goals. God gets our attention by bringing us into the furnace of affliction. We neglect God's glory otherwise. We would, just, we would like to skip trials if we were writing our, our biography in advance. Just We could just kind of write that out of the story. We, that would be the way we would go. But God is so determined to train us to seek his glory that he brings us into the furnace of affliction. And he says, I do this because I will not give my glory to another. I want to teach you to glorify me. And the same truth comes out here in Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who was called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Israel was about to be uprooted from the land. They were going to be taken captive by the Babylonians. Some of them would be taken to captivity. Some of them would be scattered to the four winds of the heavens. But God promises that he's going to regather his people from afar. And he stresses that all of this is going to take place with a view to his glory. He's made God's people for his glory. And also he does everything to them and concerning them with that same goal in mind, his glory. This is his purpose. And so when you go through trials, when we as a church, when we as a nation, when we go through trials... When you're tempted to shrink from those trials and only think about how you might avoid the trial, remember that these trials are not only for your refinement, but they are also for God's glory. And will you shrink and will you totally reject that, that the thing that's going to make you better? Are you going to, more importantly, are you going to reject that which is for God's glory? God says, I'm doing this for my glory. And God's providence not only refines his people for the purpose of his glory, but he secures his people. He says to Israel, they shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hand, that I may be glorified. Isaiah 60 and verse 21. Now God, he will be glorified in all of his providential dealings with the world. He's going to do it. But God's providence especially focuses upon his people. And even the wicked are made for the day of evil. God will get glory from the wicked in the day of judgment. But his special care pertains to his people. And in a special way, he's determined that his people will be the instruments of bringing glory to him. He called the Israelites out from the nations in order that Israel might glorify him. In Isaiah 49, three, he says, You are my servant, O Israel in whom I will be glorified. In John 17, 10, Jesus prays, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. All that I've come to do it, to die for them, to pray for them, to save them, to teach them, it is all to this end that I will be glorified in them. They will bring glory to me. And here's what I'm driving at. All of God's providential dealings with his people, they have this grand goal of God's glory. And so are you surrounded by sights and sounds that stir up the lusts of your flesh? Do you have some work associate, perhaps, that is just very difficult to get along with? Peter says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your, good, by your works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. So you see, you're to glorify God by resisting the lust of the flesh. You're to glorify God by the way in which you don't mouth off and return. When people say and do aggravating things. Because you are a a witness bearer of who God is. You were his child. And you were to be a testimony to the glory of God. That's your purpose in the midst of this, this crooked generation. And not only your general testimony, but your whole being, body and spirit, is to be used for God's glory. Paul uses this argument as he urges the Corinthians to flee immorality. He says, you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians 6.20 So he says, you're not to act like you are your own. You can just do whatever you want, that your members have been given to you just for your own pleasure. Every member of the body, every hidden member even, is to be used for God's glory. That's the argument that Paul is using. And this is the most universal of all rules. If everything was created for God's glory, if every aspect of God's providence is directed to securing that glory, then nothing that we say or do can escape from this rule. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do all to the glory of God. But that God is to be glorified on earth by our obedience and by our faithfulness, this is by by no means the conscious aim, you see, of all believers as it should be. This needs to be on our minds more often, you see. And this point is well illustrated by an anecdote that has come down to us from the Scottish covenanting times. This was at a time when the Church of England was persecuting, the, the, the government was persecuting the Scots, and uh, they were called covenanters because they made covenants to keep and obey God's word. And there was a Christian that was willing to conform to the religious requirements of the state church, and he could thereby escape persecution by conforming to what they were called conformists, conforming to what the church wanted, What the government wanted, and he asked this covenanter that he's talking to, why he prepared to, why he suffered these unnecessary trials. You don't have to go through this, you see. It's unnecessary, and this compromising Christian, he argued that the covenanter's trials, they were unnecessary. He says because, as he put it, I shall have heaven as a Christian, and you will get no more. We're going to both get there. But I will have a whole lot less pain between now and then. So why are you doing this? That was his point. And to this, the godly, non conforming covenanter answered, Yes, we shall have more. He disagreed with him. We, that is, we that keep God's word, we shall have more. We shall have glorified God on earth. That was his argument. It may not be more comfortable but we will bring God's glory this way on earth. And there's great theology at that, great heroism, I would say, in that statement as well. Nothing we do here on earth can add to God's glory, but what we do can either contradict it or it can declare it. And carelessness in our walk, in our worship, in our witness, this not only forfeits God's blessing but it robs him of what we call the declarative glory of God. We don't make God's glory, but we declare it. We proclaim it. We illustrate it. We point it out, you see, by our lives and by our words to an unbelieving world. And so, carelessness in our walk, in our worship, in our witness, it robs us, you see, of this declarative glory on earth. And this is an essential aspect of our understanding God's providence in our lives and throughout the world. It's all with a review to God's glory. That's the grand aim of God's providence. That's how we're to interpret history. Now what is true of the individual Christian is also true of the church. Now in recent days, there have been many ominous developments that threaten our First Amendment rights as Americans. And if you've been following carefully the news of what's been going on, I think you're going to know what I'm about to to speak about. Big tech is brazenly shutting down speech that it doesn't approve of if it doesn't support the politically correct position or the politically correct candidate. Just shut it down off of Google, off of Twitter, off of Facebook. Shut it down. And if this is done to shut down a story that's harmful, to the candidate that the Big Tech supports, if this is done for that purpose, you can be sure, dear people, that Big Tech will come after religious speech as well as political speech. Sooner or later, it's going to come under under this control. And these, these are ominous developments. But whatever trial God brings us through as a church, and many of us may be dead and gone before it comes with intensity in this land, whatever trial God brings upon this church and upon all the churches of the land, we may be assured of this, that God will do it for this purpose, that he will make his name glorious, that he will use his church to bring more glory to him than it was in the past. And perhaps this is going to involve even us, some of us going through fiery trials. But in the end, you see, if God uses this to bring glory to himself, then hallelujah, praise his name, he will help us get through. And if in the end he enables us to glorify him on earth, it will enlarge our minds and our hearts with a vision and love for God's glory. And in the end, that which redounds most to God's glory, it fills the hearts of God's people with the highest joy. But now, third thing I want to emphasize here in connection with the ebb and the flow of providence, the third lost concept is this the distinctive concept of history that emerged from the Protestant Reformation. Now, according to this view, the view of history that came out of the Protestant Reformation, according to this view, there were three basic periods of the church's history. There's the early church. There's the medieval period of, church, of history. and This is not only church history, but even secular history. And then there is the modern period that comes from the Reformation on. And this threefold view, it it is more important to have this view than it might first appear. The first period is the period of the early church. It was a period when the great foundational truths of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, the doctrine of salvation by grace, as Augustine emphasized it. These great doctrines were hammered out in the early church. And skipping the second but going to the third period, a period begun by the Reformation, this was a period, you see, that brought about an understanding, a fresh understanding of, of, of the doctrine of justification by faith and other great gospel doctrines. But between these two periods, early church and the Reformation, there was a period of about a thousand years in which the Western church wandered in darkness and superstition. And this is not to deny that there were good men in the Middle Ages. We are indebted, for instance, to Anselm for an understanding, a clearer understanding of the doctrine of the atonement. And he comes right smack dab in the middle of the Middle Ages. But by and large, for a thousand years, considerable darkness had descended upon the church and indeed all of Europe. And when we reflect upon this, it helps us to think to see and remember and appreciate the immense debt of gratitude that we owe to God for these reformers to help us to see what the, what the gospel is and the debt we owe to God for what these reformers did. And we mustn't allow this view of history, you see, to go by the board. Now, the reformers, they gave such doctrines as the justification by faith alone the supreme authority of scripture in the church. They gave us a biblical method of interpreting scripture, but they also gave us, you see, a new way of looking at church history. And this view is found implicitly in the three Reformation treatises that that Luther wrote in 1520. And it's also explicitly, more explicitly, in the fourth book of Calvin's Institutes. But today... There are powerful influences at work that tend to obscure this view of history. The Oxford Movement, and this is actually a little bit before today, but this was was back in the 1830s, it challenged this. The Oxford Movement was a movement that wanted to bring the Church of England back under Rome. And more recently, it's been obscured by the misguided statements of certain Protestant leaders that suggest that the Reformation was something of a tragedy. It was really unnecessary division of the the unity of the Church, and especially the doctrine of justification by faith. It has come under attack. It has been undermined by this document that was signed a couple decades ago, the evangelicals and Catholics together. And also it's been undermined more recently by the new perspective, as it's called, on justification. And if the Reformation begins to be regarded, dear people, as a tragedy, It's something that broke up a church unity. We need to bring it all back under the same roof, you see. If this happens, then Protestants have ceased to be the real heirs of of the Reformation. And to give ground on this point of history, you might think, well, uh, where's your text of scripture here, Pastor? I'll get to it in a moment. Mm -hmm. To give ground on this point of history is to surrender your people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's at stake. If the Apostle Paul were alive, if he were confronted by these departures, he surely would have something similar to say as to what he said in Galatians 1.9. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be a curse. Lest anybody wonder what this gospel is, he quickly tells us in the next chapter, knowing That a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. This is nothing other than the great doctrine that was preached by the Reformers. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. One of the great mottos of the Reformation Still on display in Geneva is the motto post Tenebras lex, after darkness light. And this is more than a slogan. It's an interpretation you see of providence and the light of the gospel. The reformation brought the gospel back to the world. After the darkness came light. But I want to just zero in as we conclude our thoughts on one of the three applications that are there in your outlines here we have dear people a renewed call to prayer in hosea 5:15 god says i will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction they will seek me early do we long, do you long for something akin to the model age of the church in Acts 2? Do we long for a revival and for reformation? Do we long for the glory of God to be manifested in our lives, in our ministries, in our churches? Do we long that the earth would see the glory of the Lord manifested throughout the earth? Isaiah declared the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Isaiah 40 verse 5. You long for that to happen? We exclaim, oh, that the glory of the Lord would indeed be revealed. Oh, that all flesh would would see it all together. We want that, don't we? And I hope that this sermon, if, if you've grown dull to that desire, would kindle that desire afresh. Don't we long for the great truths of the Reformation to be sounded again with power and with conviction and with effect so that people will be saved by the gospel that's preached? Now sometimes in order to intensify our prayers, though, the Lord says this, I'll go and return to my place. I'm going to withdraw from you for a while. I'm going to go away from you for a while. Until they acknowledge their offense, And seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me early. Are there sins we need to ask that have caused the Lord to hide his face from us? And through great calamities that have come upon our land. Is the Lord using these calamities to call his people in America to acknowledge their thanks. And to seek God and his face earnestly in prayer. All hope for this country, dear people, lies in the true believers in this land. Remember Sodom. Remember how Abraham prayed for Sodom. How it would have been spared if there were ten righteous men in Sodom. It won't do for us to say that we're citizens of heaven. It doesn't matter about this land, America. We can just let it go to hell. We're going to heaven. It won't do for us to think that way. You and I, we are part of this nation. I hope that you love America. I hope that you are broken over the sins of America. I hope that these days, what's happened in these days and this year, it isn't so much the virus that is all the talk in your mind, in your heart, and in your home. We see the chastening hand, do we not, upon a nation. And we share in the bounty of this nation. We share in the privileges of this nation. And therefore we are called upon as new covenant priests. Each one is a priest before God. To come to the Lord and pray just like the priests of old prayed in behalf of their people. We have children being dragged down to hell by the ungodliness that's all around us. They're being dragged down by what they hear at school. By what they see as they, they go on the internet. And will we not cry out earnestly that God will rescue them? And above all, we are distressed over the way the glory of God is being dragged through the mud. Let us therefore cry to God day and night that the glory of the Lord would be revealed so that all flesh would see it together. And if you're here without the Lord Jesus, our great desire is that you would see that glory. That glory is seen first and foremost in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that you would see that this is an all-sufficient Savior, one who in a most glorious, righteous way has provided for salvation. He's provided a way for you. Will you not come to this Lord Jesus? Will you not give God the glory by repenting of your sin? and calling upon him to make you a Christian, to make you a follower of the Lord Jesus, to make you someone that for this day on wants to bring glory and honor to God Almighty and to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you have given to us the teaching of scripture that we have sought to expound. We thank you and we praise you for the way in which you have set before us a model, model, the model of the early church. We bless you for the hundreds of times, only a few of which we could mention this morning, hundreds of times in which you have stressed your glory as the great aim of your providence and of your creation. And we thank you and bless you that You restored the church to a a period of glory and a period of blessing by bringing out once again the great and glorious doctrine of justification by faith in the Reformation. We bless you, Lord, that we are the the recipients of of the blessings of of that time of glory and blessing. And now, O Lord, as we see your name being dragged through the mud, as we see rioting the streets, as we see hatred bursting out on all sides, as we see ungodliness out in the open in ways it was not before, as our hearts are grieved, as we are wrenched, as we are torn over what we see and what we hear day after day, as we hear all the bile that comes out in this election season, O Lord, our hearts are grieved. And yet, O Lord, as we see that which is around us, our hearts are especially grieved not just for what, was, what we see out there, but what we see also in our own hearts. We have partaken of this world. We have been dulled by its goods and its, its enticements. Our hearts have been polluted by its influence. Oh, Lord, we do pray that you would take it out of our hearts. We pray that you would make us to be a people, Albany Baptist Church, a people that love you, a people that serves you, a people that, that bring glory unto you, and to your Son, the Lord Jesus. And would you not, O Lord, even be pleased to glorify your Son, the Lord Jesus, even by saving someone in this room that is hearing this very sermon. Have mercy upon us, we do pray. For we pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.